Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm recording this from the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people. First Nations people have been custodians of this land for tens of thousands of years. Colonisation is a process that law and regulation have been deeply complicit in, taking land, sea, children and lives. I record this today after Zachary Rolfe was acquitted by an all non-Aboriginal jury of the murder of an Aboriginal teenager. A third of the population in the Northern Territory is Aboriginal, and yet there is no representation in that jury and no justice. Over 500 deaths have occurred since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody, and no convictions. I want to acknowledge that despite this ongoing colonisation, 60,000 years of wisdom continues, and so too does non-Aboriginal Australia's obligation to take a daily personal responsibility to support reconciliation through truth and justice. Today's episode is with David Mann, Executive Director and Principal Solicitor of Refugee Legal, an organisation established in 1998 to provide legal advice and representation to people seeking asylum or migration. David has been practising immigration uh, and refugee law for over 30 years and has taken the Australian government to task on its immigration policies and laws, including some of Australia's most high-profile decisions. Today we spoke about our immigration system and the enormous power of the executive arm of government and why that should worry all Australians who care about the rule of law, justice and fairness. Inhumane immigration policy is largely bipartisan policy in Australia, so it's incumbent on us to force major political parties to give us a choice. All right. Um, thanks so much, David, for, for coming today. Um, one of the, the, the first question we ask everyone is, um, why does regulation matter to you and why does it matter to your community? Well, um, really good to, uh, to join you for this um, conversation. Thanks a lot. Um, it's, a, it's a terrific question because I think it has... A, a whole range of different dimensions to it. But I think it starts with um, really the question of what are the rules of engagement in a society in terms of treatment of people um, and, uh, and about, you know, a level playing field or, or how, do, how do you ensure that people can be as far as is possible on equal footing before the law and in the way that we, you know, sort of interact socially. I mean, really regulation is a social act in a way. I, I think of it as a social act uh, in the sense as I do the law, law is a social instrument. Uh, and uh, so it comes back to that and how, how does that reflect fundamental values in our society that we've committed to, to live under, such as, you know, fairness and um, yeah, decency and um, equity, um, yeah, fundamental notions of justice and dignity. But Look, I also think there's a whole other dimension to it too where my mind goes on, on the question of regulation and that is um, underpinned by my, um, my view about um, power, um, yeah. the exercise of power by governments. And, you know, my, my basic view is that, uh, that uh, the, the, you know, the power um, it, you know, exercised by governments um, by its very nature um, is likely to overreach um, and uh, that regulation, one of the keys to regulation is not only how we organise the rules of engagement, but actually about how we constrain um, the exercise of power, primarily by government, by, by the executive. And uh, I think that's central to it. So if I could quickly summarise, it's about constraints, to, constraints on power, the exercise mm -hmm. of power. Uh, it's about um, ensuring that there is, as far as is possible, um, a, re a real clarity about how and certainty about how we order the rules of engagement in society. It's also about ensuring that rules are ascertainable, that we know what they are as far as is possible um, in our daily lives. 
And it's also about consistency. They're applied consistently, you know, um, particularly consistently in a general sense, I guess, that, you know, we, we have this certain kind of predictability mm. to the way that regulation operates. Um, but also, uh, also, I think really importantly that, um, that it be non-discriminatory, that, um, that, you know, matter, no matter who you are or where you're from, that, um, that, that regulations apply um, equally. Um, and uh, yeah, and that the law, if, if I could broaden it out from regulation to law, um, that the law not just be the province of the powerful and privileged, but uh, you know that that the exercise of, of power and the, and the regulation of laws um, be applied equally, no matter you know where someone's from, no matter their race, their religion, you know their their political opinions, you know their nationality or you know, their, their member, membership of a group, of a particular social group. And yeah. what I'm really doing there, I should just be uh, sort of uh, be upfront about too, is I'm sort of outlining the key, the five reasons under the Refugees Convention. Oh, uh, I didn't pick uh, up which, on that. Okay, which, well, which well, be, well, nice and sneaky. Well, they're a very good articulation, I think, of, of, uh, of the ways in which people can be discriminated against or targeted um, or disadvantaged and... Uh, and anyway, so that there's essentially social or political reasons, um, yeah. um, but that look that that to me is 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 the starting point. Yeah, but I and, and that's a starting point. But nowhere, I imagine, is the question of power, um, rule of law, um, rules of engagement, and and discrimination more relevant in. Um, and I'm certainly not um, experienced in this space, but nowhere in my mind does it is there just enormous executive power than immigration right like these questions you can you cannot avoid these questions in your space um could you explain for you know so some of the listeners here will be familiar with law some won't be so what are our international obligations so you alluded to the refugee convention uh and generally uh, have we implemented those uh those obligations um within our country yeah, well, look, the starting point for all of this, if I if I can say, there, are, um, I, I'm I'm um, absolutely committed to not overcomplicating uh, the Refugees Convention and international obligations. Um, one because it'll be um, better for the listening. <laughs> um, so, uh, but actually, uh, in another sense, um, I'm a, I'm a, become more and more having worked in this area for over, well over two decades now more and more an advocate, passionate advocate, really, of, of not overcomplicating uh, the, these obligations because I think that, and I'll go to the heart of your answer in a second, but I do just want to start by saying that, you know, the real question is with all of these treaty obligations that we've signed up to, how, how to get these obligations, these treaty obligations, to spring from the pages of treaties and statutes and law books to respond to the predicament of people? Mm. That's what they're about. That's what human rights is ultimately about. You know, it's human rights and refugee refugee law are about people. You know, they're, they're about the plight of people. They're about all of us. You know, uh, and they're underpinned by respecting human dignity. And with the Refugees Convention, ultimately, it's underpinned by a protective intent. Mm. Its purpose is protective. Mm. Um, so, point being here um, that. Um, you know, in terms of those fundamental considerations of humanity, um, it's critical not to overcomplicate them. And so with the Refugees Convention, uh, as with any treaty, fix on the fundamentals. Don't overcomplicate it. With the Refugees Convention, there are two critical obligations. Firstly, access to territory to claim protection. So the first is that right to access to territory to claim protection. The second is um, the non-expulsion obligation. That is the obligation to protect someone from future harm and not expel them to dangers elsewhere, okay? So again, very simple, right to access to territory to claim protection. Um, and secondly, the obligation to ensure that someone is protected from future harm from being expelled to future harm. That's what the convention's about. As soon as it becomes overcomplicated by lawyers, uh, by governments, by you know academics and the like, um, and civil society more generally, uh, what we see is almost inevitably 
that the, that the rights become restricted. They become the rights are narrow, um, and uh, and with dramatic consequences, almost all of them adverse for people in need of protection. And uh, I can give you many examples of that. Um, but uh, as soon as we see um, that happen, what we see is the laws being used to exclude people from the protection which the, the Refugees Convention um, at its heart is about, mm. is about responding. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's essentially... Um, you know, that, that document, uh, that treaty was, of course, born out of the, created out of the ashes of the Second World War. Um, and uh, it was, a, it was a, the international community coming together with a, a big promise and a big commitment to ensure that in the future there was a, a safety, a, a framework, a safety net, a framework internationally mm. uh, underpinned by cooperation of states to ensure that anyone in the future who was forced to flee from their home in danger, um, seeking protection elsewhere from persecution, would get it. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and there are so many examples now with the overcomplication of laws um, in Australia and elsewhere, where so often it's about how do we narrow the scope of the protection that will be given? Mm. And then you get these vast legal architectures of, of, of regulation, you know, going back to your initial question, which almost all of them, if you really step back and have a look at them, almost all of them are about um, how do we work out ways to exclude people from getting that protection, making yeah. it more difficult for them to even make a claim, and if they do, how do we work out how we might be able to exclude them from it? Yeah, yeah, from yeah. protection. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so it sounds like um, you know, if it, it, yeah, like you said, there's two. Um, two essential claims there, which is you got to welcome people in when they're in crisis. I mean, I know crisis is defined, you know, um, we don't have environmental um, protections for people escaping environmental kind of crises. But, um, and then when they're here, don't kick them out. Um, That's if, it. Yeah. That's exactly right, Simon. And, and, you know, I can put it even, simpler, even more simply, you know, um, let someone in, as you say, uh, let, let them in and hear their claim yeah, yeah. examine it I'm not you know it's got to be examined we yeah, have of you know, rules for that yeah um it's predicated on on you know a fair hearing yeah but uh but here here's someone you know yeah. here's someone's yeah. claim why are they here why have they taken that dramatic step <laughs> extraordinarily <laughs> traumatic step mm. to leave their home um and why and give them a hearing um in a way which can and, and then you know there are laws um very clear laws about the test. You know, there's a legal test is about whether someone's a refugee. Do they meet that test? But if done properly, it should proceed on the basis of ensuring that they understand the process, they understand the, 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 the questions, but most importantly, that they're heard on them, that they're given a space in which to, and a process by which they can be properly heard um, and that a process that, you know, um, ensures that, um, you know, that, that it gives them fairness in that, but actually... Um, makes a, a fair a fair decision um, based on you know their claims. Yeah, and um, not having sort of touched um, migration law since um, three or four prime ministers ago when I studied it, I didn't think I ever um, came across an area of law that was more complex um, in terms of uh, pathways and. You know, different um, different sort of definitions for different um, migration pathways. I, the 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 idea that anyone could access the law in the way that you um, said would be the ideal scenario is impossible to my mind. Um, sounds like it sounds like that you know we, we haven't um, implemented those obligations clearly on that basis. Um, We'll probably unpack that a bit more as we go along. But I, one of the reasons I reached out to you actually was um, actually we didn't talk about this in advance, but uh, you came and spoke to my uh, to my university just after um, uh, a case that you were involved in. Um, so I, I was at Griffith University. Um, and oh, right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you had the law dinner. I you remember did. That. You came yeah. to the law dinner. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, um, I'd had a few few beers that night, um, and uh, it, you know, so it was all about offshore processing, and a lot of people would 
um, remember this is the Malaysia solution kind of case. And so um, for those who haven't, um, uh, haven't come across it, and, and please correct me, David, if I've misframed this, but um, it was a case to determine whether Malaysia was a lawful place for us to um, send people for um, uh, not offshore detention, but maybe processing of their claims. I sort of wonder whether that's even compatible with the convention in the first place, but um, uh, whether that was an appropriate place and the minister had to make a decision about those things. The court... And the minister said, "Yeah, this is this is solid. We can send people here for the um, for processing." But the court said, "No, that wasn't um, that wasn't an appropriate place because they weren't signatories to the convention." But then, um, Nauru and Manus Island um, were selected as um, places for detention and processing. So, firstly, I mean, is that framing correct? But how do you? I mean, how how did we get to that point where they could? Um, circumvent um, the court and basically just put people elsewhere and process them in a way that isn't compatible, I would imagine, with the convention. Yeah, well, look, uh, if, if it's okay, Simon, I'm, I'll give a little bit of background, both um, sort of uh, the sort of brief backdrop, um, uh, you know, in, in Australia at the time and internationally, but particularly in Australia, um, politically and policy-wise, and also... Um, how this case sort of landed on my kitchen bench, actually, if, that's okay. if, you, if you like, just a bit of the, the backstory quickly as to how we got there. But, look, uh, yeah, so look, the, the story actually started um, with uh, really the government uh, in 2011. There were, um, there were um, quite, quite an, it was increasing boat arrivals during that period. And as we know, it's one of those touchstone issues in Australia that it's almost like a bit... It's been characterised as sort of a public emergency when a small amount of people come by boat to uh, to Australia seeking asylum, and um, it's just one of those um, dynamics that's developed over the years. And it had, um, yeah, there were increased boat arrivals at the time, and um, you know the, the the politics of asylum had once again descended into that sort of toxic um, toxic mix of sort of fear and um, and uh, and it became a political contest again, the question of our obligations to people seeking help in Australia. And um, as part of that, uh, the government of the day um, was um, um, had announced a deal with Malaysia uh, to a sort of a refugee um, swap, if you like. And as part of that, um, Australia, this deal, um, I think it was called the Malaysia Agreement, um, Australia was to send up to 800 people who'd sought protection in Australia by boat to Malaysia for processing. And in return, um, uh, Malaysia was to, uh, uh, Australia was to resettle for up to 4,000 refugees. I think that was the dynamic, of, that was the basic outline of the policy. Um, and um, what happened really, um, the, the sort of uh, beginnings of the implementation of that policy is um, it takes us to August 2011. And uh, essentially, um, I was, you know, cooking on, a, on an early Saturday evening um, at my home in inner city Melbourne and, um, uh, and I received a call for help and, and it was a distress call relayed through a young Canberra-based um, legal aid duty lawyer at the time and he was... Um, He's probably waiting um, for his first call to, uh, of the evening to advise someone on um, he'd been arrested on you know, drunken disorderly charges. And, um, but instead of that, he told me he'd received a call literally out of the blue from a group of men incarcerated on Christmas Island wanting advice. And, and, and these men, he's, some of them from Afghanistan, feared being expelled to Malaysia. Right. Yeah. Um, now, the matter was urgent and how urgent was unclear, but... There was a sense that expulsions could happen as early as the as Monday. So this is on the Saturday evening, and so this lawyer had literally no experience in refugee law, but had the presence of mind to send a message out to legal networks in Australia, uh, which may know where to find a refugee lawyer, and, and that's how the call for help landed on my kitchen bench. Um, and um, so later that evening, um, I spoke by phone with some of the Afghan men seeking help. Uh, and they were absolutely petrified. Um, they, they explained through the aid of interpreters that um, they'd recently arrived in Australia by boat 
um, seeking protection from persecution in their homeland, only to then be told by Australian officials that they would not be allowed to seek protection as refugees in Australia, but instead be sent to effectively expelled to Malaysia. That's what they've been told. And they told me they, they feared more suffering and brutality in Malaysia and then deportation from Malaysia to, you know, um, almost certainly life-threatening harm, brutality in their homeland. So, uh, you know, but look, the other thing, Simon, the brief, and if I can uh, just mention, we, it had an extra complex twist to it because one of the men I spoke to was called Mr Shah, and um, he was the man who took the phone that night uh, when men in the group, other men in the group, uh, became too frightened uh, to keep speaking with me out of fear of the consequences, fear of retribution. Um, and he's the young man who became the lead plaintiff in the High Court challenge that you mentioned. Uh, which M70. Yeah, M70. Um, Mr Shah was M70. And uh, can you imagine? I mean, he's locked up on Christmas Island, thousands of kilometres away. Um, it's just arrived by boat recently in Australia. And uh, that evening, Mr Shah sounded even more distressed, not about his own plight, but about the plight of the unaccompanied children and families, that his mothers and their children and unaccompanied children who were incarcerated separately but out of reach on Christmas Island. So, they, you know, they were in another spot on, in the detention camp. And um, they too wanted legal help and he pleaded with me. I still remember it to this day, it sort of, uh, you know, vividly that he said, can you please help them, David? Can you please do what you can because they need help like us? And so my efforts that evening to speak with the unaccompanied children and the mothers failed. Um, immigration department officials literally refused me access uh, despite repeated requests for access. I was told uh, that the department and the private detention centre operators uh, were what they said on alert. They kept telling them they were on alert. And I said, well, alert for what? And uh, they said, oh, well, if someone says something like lawyer, I was told. The fact is, and history tells that six of these unaccompanied children were only then able to join the High Court action because the next morning on Sunday morning, Mr Shah was able to recall their names from the mm. public. And he ended up acting as their what's called a litigation guardian um, in the High Court case. Um, this is all the time he agreed to do that while department, this is literally Australian departmental officials acting under the delegation um, of their primary legal guardian, the immigration minister, were blocking access. Incredible. So all of this was happening on Australian soil only a few years ago. Um, so look, I'll, I'll just quickly finish off by saying that we... we no, just, just acknowledging the, the before you do that, though, the, um, I mean, I was quite upset hearing that, just being reminded of it, but just I, I don't think we as a, an Australian community understand the... Bravery isn't an appropriate term, but the bravery of um, people like Mr. Shah to, to not just speak up about their own matter, but often the motivations for doing that um, uh, are incredibly noble and the sacrifices they have to make to do that are enormous. Um, ah, yeah. Extraordinary courage. Um, yeah, extraordinary courage. Um, so what then happened literally overnight, so this is on the Saturday night, all this is unfolding, we assembled a legal team comprising some of the finest in this field in Australia. Um, I counseled, there were counsel at Debbie Mortimer SC, who's now uh, a judge of the federal court, uh, Richard Nile QC, who's now on the Court of Appeal in Victoria as a judge, uh, Kristen Walker, who's now also on the Court of Appeal, um, uh, and uh, was became a leading silk before that, but and you know leading law firm Allen's. They're all acting pro bono, and I think that's a really important um, mm. part of it too, Simon. That they had agreed to swing into action with us uh, to act pro bono and act urgently. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the yeah, the fee charging exploits of uh, lawyers are legendary in the public imagination, but I think less well known. Um, is a really rich tradition of pro bono assistance by some of the finest lawyers in this country. And, um, and you know, with, from my experience, with just a common conviction that even the most vulnerable and marginalised people um, should be able to get a fair go before the law. They should be on equal footing before the law. And I, I, I can't emphasise enough that matters profoundly. Um, and, um, you know, how that translated was within 24 hours at 6pm on Sunday evening, 
the next evening, we were before the High Court uh, of Australia in Melbourne, um, before His Honour Justice Hayne, and um, we saw an urgent injunction to stop the government from expelling um, our clients from Malaysia, and that's where we heard, precisely how urgent it was, that um, 16 of the men were actually um, slated to be put on a plane at 11.30 a.m. the next morning, Monday morning. Um, so Justice Hayne granted the interim injunction uh, that effectively prevented the expulsions, those planned expulsions on Monday morning. And then the following day, on Monday, um, the injunction was extended pending the full determination of the matter before the High Court, which was then heard and decided within, I think, three and a half weeks thereafter, so in, in late August. And, but, you know, that's how close these people came to losing their rights. And I think when you think about what's at stake, no less than you know, life and liberty, um, you know, protection from extremist brutality, I think it's, it, it is a reminder of, I think, of, of just how precarious access to lawyers and the law things can be in this country. And, mm. and that remains the case to this day. Um, you know, I mean, your characterisation earlier of the outcome of the case is, it, it, you know, basically correct that, you know, three weeks later, the High Court emphatically ruled by majority of six to one that the government's proposed expulsion of these people to Malaysia was unlawful and prohibited, principally because Malaysia was not bound by international or domestic law to process or to protect um, asylum seekers or refugees. That's, that's the ruling. And, you know, I, I think, you know, Final bit of this story, if I can just say, was that I, you know, you know, found myself with other members of the legal team crowded around a telephone in Melbourne, telling six six unaccompanied minors, uh, accompanied kids, and thirty six men incarcerated thousands of kilometres away that they'd won their case, and that the court had said that the government was not allowed to expel them to Malaysia, and. Um, you know, I can say that, that you know, for very vulnerable people who are unlikely to have ever had anyone independent, let alone the law, spring to their defence through you know, very traumatic pasts. I think the sense of relief was really deep. It was it was overwhelming, but I think also a sense of empowerment. Mm. You know, the law can do this sometimes, and that gets me back to that point about you know the level playing field. You mm. know that. Um, you know, trying to, as far as we can, ensure that people are on equal footing before the law. Mm. It does concern me, though, when you when you talk through that the arbitra- like the arbitrariness of of how that all transpired, in the sense of you know it depended yeah. on that lawyer making contact um, at that time, and um, you know that that was in spite of the system, not because of it um, that people yeah. got a fair hearing and. Um, yeah, I, I worry in, in the immigration system almost more than any other that um, the chips are completely stacked against you uh, yeah. and yeah. and that you can't do well without a lawyer, you know, like that um, it, it is such a technical area. And for the reasons you spoke about earlier, it's intentionally technical to kind of carve out, um, you know, the obligations that, that the state doesn't want to follow. Yeah, that's right. That's it. That's it. It is. Um, it, it is so critical that people can get access to a lawyer in this. In you know, I think that if they can't, I think um, you know their 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 chances are seriously jeopardised. I think that's right in the system. I think that that's um, really clear. Mm. So, I mean, the other thing I just want to finish off quickly, if I can, is what you know. Your, part of your question was about what then happened um, after that, and um, I mean, the first thing is that many many people were protected um, uh, and ended up with protection. So Mr Shah and others ended up with permanent protection in Australia. So I think that that's a really... So, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds and, you know, quite possibly many more as a consequence of that decision ended up with protection rather than being sent back to danger. Um, and so, I, and I, I, you know, I think that that is, a, you know, at, at the heart of, you know, what we did really you know what what you know was to answer a call a distress call and to do our best to ensure that people seeking protection could get it um but within a year it, was, it took about a year of um of basically political jousting between you know the, the government of the day and um and the opposition um but it took about a year of political jousting but what happened 
a year after that case was that new laws, of course, were then passed in the Parliament that sought, that, that sought to circumvent uh, the ruling of the court, of the High Court, by literally these amendments stripped bare the statute of key safeguards um, that, it, um, that the High Court had ruled on, key safeguards against sending people to places without proper protections backed by law. And, um, and what to this day remains are these vast provisions in the Migration Act, again, yeah, replace one architecture with another, that hands the Minister of the Day an almost unfettered power to expel an asylum seeker anywhere at any time without having to consider what would happen to them as if the Refugees Convention, you know, somehow comes with the on-off or pause button, you know, the Parliament can just press pause. And, um, mm. and you know, the concern here, and this goes back to the exercise of power that I mentioned before about by the executive, the concern here that I'm pointing to is not to be clear with the engagement by, you know, the executive government or, or parliament in it in clearly a legitimate um, and necessary function of lawmaking. That's not the that's not the concern here. The concern is the nature of the laws which have been made, and that is that to circumvent the court's ruling, um, which is at its heart protective, it was based on a statutory construction of legal constraints under the Migration Act which were um, at least provided some modicum of protection to refugees. But what happened then was to circumvent the court's ruling about that, it's been considered necessary to all but remove the role of the courts and thus, you know, basically the ordinary operation of the rule of law. You know, what I describe as taking the law out of the law. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's almost like a nihilistic instrument, isn't it? In the sense, that's right. We then have laws where, on one view, the executive just can decide for itself whether it's applying the responsibilities to refugees, which it appears it still to this day accepts that it has or should have at least. It's like you know, laws that effectively can amount to trust us, you know, mm-hmm. sort of trust us laws, you know. Um, so that's what's happened, and basically that opened up. Um, the pathway to uh, to also reopening, um, going back down that dark path of reopening Nauru and Papua New Guinea at Manus Island. That's uh, that's what ended up happening as a consequence. It wasn't just the, the circumvention of the court for new laws, but then the the use of them with full force to expel um, you know, innocent, vulnerable people to years and years of you know, being held um, in cruel and inhumane conditions in limbo um, in Nauru and, uh, and in PNG. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, I'm interviewing in a, in a month or so um, Dr. Anthea Vogel, um, who's, who's done some work in um, how um, the conditions on Manus and Nauru were regulated and how not the non-for-profit sector was kind of used as de facto extensions of the state to enforce the, um, or monitor at least the quote-unquote code of conduct that um, uh, that uh, residents or detainees had to follow. And so I'll definitely be unpacking what those conditions were like um, on Manus and Nauru. Um, I don't think you would meet the definition of a, an asylum seeker, but um, you know some of the themes that we that we hear um, about the migration system kind of came up in a recent case involving uh, tennis star, you know, the, in my opinion, the third best male tennis star, um, uh, who uh, Novak Djokovic, who was ultimately um, forced to, to leave the country. Um, what do you think that whole saga reveals about? Um, our migration system. Well, could I just start by saying that none of it for a second surprised me or my um, colleagues when we saw this unfolding. None of it um, was in any way of su- any surprise. So while I know it was um, sort of captured the public's imagination in a range of ways, obviously for obvious reasons, and um, and seemed to yeah, surprise a lot of people in terms of the, the way the system operated, it didn't surprise us because it happens every day. Um, what was going, what happened there? Um, it was, at, you know, at its heart, a classic example of the minister using extraordinary and vast powers to circumvent uh, the court's decision. Mm. You know, um, at one level, I mean, I, it was partly about that. So, you know, I think, yeah, just to recap, you know, we 
initially he you know initially had a win in the courts and really that was fundamentally about a, a, a different question to the one that ultimately he lost on the first question was really about whether he'd been given natural justice in the interview at the airport when he arrived and um you know if you look through the transcript of that interview um uh there are you know there are I think at least classic, and you know, certainly this is found by the court, classic denials of procedural fairness or natural justice. He just wasn't given natural justice in the way that we'd ordinarily expect. Um, putting aside the merits ultimately of the case, that that was that so that but look, I have to tell you, none of that is a surprise. What I, I would like to emphasize here is that so many of the people that we help in similar circumstances who are not tennis champions, but actually you know, really people coming with in, in very desperate circumstances and um, often very frightened and traumatised um, and, you know, not with those kind of resources, um, uh, uh, experience that kind of um, uh, denial of natural justice and, and fairness every day. Um, yeah. You know, there are plenty of people over the years that have arrived in Australia seeking to enter um, who have then been denied entry and either returned to you know, potentially extremely dangerous situations or to third countries where they have no particular routes or no particular way of then navigating their future. And in other words, being sort of, you know, bounced around into further situations of uncertainty and insecurity. Mm. Uh, some people aren't. Some people are let in and then um, detained um, and indefinitely detained. Uh, and... Uh, we, we help people every day in those situations. So that, at one level, was one of the one of the themes. But I also think those extremely broad, broad sort of godlike powers also came to the fore with the the next part of the case, if you like, the which was the you know the, which ultimately ended up with his visa being cancelled, uh, Novak Djokovic's visa being cancelled, and really there was a different question. And again. It points to another aspect of the system, which is absolutely systemic throughout. It sort of infuses, or if you like, infects the whole system. And this is the, this extraordinary, vast um, set of powers um, that the minister has that, you know, to play with people's lives. Here, what we saw was the response of the government was to um, cancel on his visa on the basis of um, what was a purported, uh, purportedly on the basis that he posed a risk to public, to, to, to public order, to good public order, mm. on the basis purportedly of his anti-vax stance. Uh, you know, now look, I, 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 why I'm saying purportedly is I, I don't, I don't want to go into uh, commentary at all about um, the veracity of that at all. I'm just literally stating as fact in the case that's what it ultimately was about. But the point is that the powers that the government drew upon and the minister made the decision on are extraordinarily broad. Um, and ultimately, in my view at least, um, the decision of the full court of the federal court um, was really making an assessment, as I think it pointed out, it wasn't making an assessment ultimately about um, you know, particular merits of the, um, you know, of, of the actual decision, of, but whether it actually was um, in accordance with law. Um, and because the powers are so broad, um, you know, um, they, um, you know, the government got over the line. And um, whether they should or not, I don't want to make comment on. And don't take me as sort of inferring it either way. It's just that that is the nature of these powers. Mm. Uh, the government can come up with a good order, you know, public public order rationale and cancel on that basis. Um, and uh, you know, the the concern for us is actually, in a way, how those kind of powers could be used in other contexts. Yeah. You know, um, for very vulnerable people. I mean, the truth of it is, at the end of the day, Novak Djokovic can fly off um, to various homes around the world, as far as I can work out. Uh, and uh, but many of the people subject to these kind of laws can't. They end up stuck in indefinite detention. So that's the final point, Simon. I did want to raise, and that is another aspect that um, you know graphically illustrates another. Um, uh, you know, systematic injustice and, and harm in the system, and that is indefinite detention. Yeah. Um, I think what's really telling here is actually the government um, uh, not only chose to detain him, and I want to make that point too, that, yes, his visa was cancelled, mm -hmm. and if a visa is cancelled, someone doesn't have a visa anymore, 
they must be detained under Australian law. It's a binary system. If you have a visa, you can't be detained. If you don't have a visa, you must be detained. But, and this is the big but, there are then, and we get back to ministerial powers, there are these plenty of powers at the minister's disposal where literally with the stroke of a pen, someone can be released. Um, so, you know, Novak Djokovic didn't have to be detained, frankly. Um, and um, plenty of other people who uh, have remained in the Park Hotel in the most cruel and inhumane and unnecessary circumstances, you know, locked up indefinitely uh, without charge as refugees, um, you know, on the fringes of the Melbourne CBD, that has, up to my mind at least, um, the, the policy of indefinite detention, which is not new, it's decades, you know, several decades now, three decades of, of this, you know, terrible, you know, that one of the worst of all sort of human rights abuses being perpetrated by successive governments. But the extremity of it, I think, um, is now, is now uh, has reached a point where we, we no longer are we just detaining people out of sight, out of mind remotely on islands like Christmas Island or in the remote desert camps, but we're actually doing it on the fringes of the Melbourne CBD. Yeah. In front of people coming, passing by every day in full sight. And to me, that points to another aspect of policy, which is that it's become more and more performative. Yeah. You know, it's playing out deliberately, playing out before people's eyes as to, to sort of, to, to again, to, to show the public, you know, how, you know, in some way um, what is being done and mm. the intent to do so. And I think that, you know, the test here for us all is, you know, um, you know, how do we respond to that? Because I think there is a very significant danger in us becoming more and more inured to, you know, one of the worst of all human rights violations, the deprivation of someone's liberty, you know, locking up someone without innocence, without charge, you know. And Novak Djokovic, just to come back to this point again, I think there's something very important in the fact that the government chose to lock him up, number one, and number two, to lock him up in the Park Hotel, together with, you know, refugees um, who have been used as human shields by the government, frankly, um, as part of this, the, 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 the more and more extreme manifestation of the deterrence agenda. And at one level, you could say, well, the government, you know, were, were treating him in the same way. It's almost like sort of treating him in the same way as others. Um, but it was more than that, I think. It was far more than that. It was again very performative, very performative, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 sending a message, you know, and um, and it's a big test for all of us. I, I can't emphasize that enough. You know, how do we as a society um, respond to that? Um, and uh, what 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 do we do in, in in terms of seeking change? Anyway, there, there, there's some of my takes on the Novak Djokovic case, um, mm -hmm. but I can't emphasize enough, Simon, the thing that struck us most, myself and colleagues um, who work on helping people daily in these kinds of predicaments of, of you know, where people are subject to cancellation, uh, subject to indefinite detention, it just so powerfully uh, demonstrated, you know, the, 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 the cruelty and justice of the policy. Yeah, absolutely. And if there is a, a silver lining out of that whole situation, it is that um, was able to give visibility to and, and noting, though, that, you, that as you say, um, Mr Djokovic has far greater resources, but still um, highlighting some of those systemic features you spoke about in terms of power and um, yeah. godlike power. Yeah. It, can I just say, there's a note of hope on this, that um, while I do think, and I think we, you know, I'm a great, great believer, and I think George Orwell is one of them that's made this sort of, you know, sort of idea, um, sort of famous, but the idea of the importance of confronting unpleasant truths. Um, I'm a great believer in that. And so we have to look at it dead in the eye for what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the, you know, the, the cruelty and injustice and the, just the devastating harm but I do think, and also the fact that I, I do think that after 30 years or so of mandatory indefinite detention in this country of locking up innocent people um, without end, I do think there is a real danger that we as a society um, become inured to that, um, you know. But I also think that uh, on a more hopeful note, 
I, I never think that that's, you know, that that's fixed. I think that we can change that. And I do note over the, the summer holidays, I did take a break in January. And um, while this was all unfolding, of course, I was sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, deeply engaged in it. But I um, did note too, you know, the, the old cafe or with passers-by, everyone was talking about it, of course. Um, but I did note, I was just picked up from people that I chatted with or heard, you know, sort of by the by that people were, it had, it had so people were sort of becoming more aware. I think there was an aware, a growing awareness about you know the practice of indefinite detention of using this um, yeah this policy in this way. And I do did note some increased concern. How do we translate that more broadly? I think is a real question. But there is an opportunity still to yeah. do something like this. I think people were very uneasy. A lot of people seemed who don't normally take a lot of note of these kind of uh, issues, were very uneasy. They, they were sort of scratching their head going, why are we doing that? He said, oh, I wasn't sure. I didn't realise this was, you know, going on um, in this way and that refugees were being locked up in this way. I mean, you could, there's all sorts of responses to that. Well, why not? But um, but, I, but, I, but I think at another level, there was an unease, a real yeah. unease. You question, why are we doing that? Why is that necessary? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I mean... Um... Uh, I, I sense that too, that there was probably short-term political gain, but I, I wonder what the long-term implications for the government, but I wonder what the long-term implications are and that's not fixed, like you say, we, you know. Um, uh, you know, and I just, I would reflect that we will have a Royal Commission into this at some point in time and, you know, the listeners just need to reflect on, you know, will they be able to look back and say they did their little part to um, to do the right thing because, I can be certain there will be an inquiry of some description and we'll say we didn't know any better, um, but we all did. Um, are there, so let's move to hope after I just, you know, stuck a dagger into the listeners. Um, are there any things that the uh, Australian government can do in the short term to improve uh, the migration system? And then, you know, charting more to that medium and long-term kind of solution. Yeah, well, there are. There are plenty of things that uh, not only could be done but should be done. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're chatting um, uh, as an election looms, a federal election looms. We're back in that cycle, you know, that that part of the political cycle. And, of course, you can imagine, Simon, I don't think there's any, um, uh, you know, for, for those those of us that work in this area uh, and, uh, and you know, live it and breathe it, um, it is also a time, a really important time uh, to be... Honing, you know, honing the responses to the question you've asked, and and speaking to people, policymakers, you know, and uh, politicians of all persuasions and and others uh, about the change. Because look, one thing about change, you know, I you know, sort of always inclined toward hope. That's um, I, I don't know how not to. Um, I mean, you could try the opposite, um, but it, it won't work very well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no. Um, but hope is, is is central. It's a you know, and it's the state of the soul. I mean, you've got to be sort of and, and it should be, because change is inevitable. The question is, you know, ultimately uh, what, what it's going to look like. And you've got to turn up to be part of making it. Uh, that's the bottom line. So, you know, I think that here, what can, you know, what can be done in the short term in a range of things? And I think it should start um, with what's possible, actually, um, yep. in the immediate. And so I just want to outline a few, um, uh, few matters. One is the slow motion crisis, as I call it, of 31,000 people who in the last decade or so came to this country seeking asylum by boat mm -hmm. um, and who these are people who were not sent to Nauru or to Manus, mm -hmm. uh, but rather were stayed in Australia and then were left in limbo for years and ultimately were able to apply only for a temporary protection visa. So these are people who... Basically, the best that they can get is a temporary protection visa for three or five years, mm. and then the best that they can do under the current policy, they're left in an endless cycle of uncertainty and limbo, uh, in, but they're in our community, they're living with us. They're, they're neighbours, they're workmates, they're, you know, school friends, they're, they're you know, they're, they're members of the community being left for the rest of their lives in, with this, in this perpetual limbo where the best they can do is reapply every three or five years for, for protection. People, just to, to highlight how extraordinary this policy is, 
there's people who are never going to be able to return, people from Afghanistan, from Syria, from Iran, from, you know, from Myanmar, you know, I, on it goes. I mean, being, being subjected to, frankly, uh, being consigned to a twilight world in our community um, when, um, you know, they want to contribute, they want to participate, they want to be, they want to belong, you know, yeah. and, uh, and build lives here. And they are, but yeah. with this impediment. So conversion, sorry, very simple. It's been done before. This is another iteration um, of the TPV policy, which was abolished in 2008. After so it started in 1999 under the Howard government, then in October 1999 it was uh, uh, and and it then it it, it um, was abolished by the Rudd government in 2008, and the, and the abolition literally converted everyone on a temporary visa to a permanent visa, permanent residence with the pathway to citizenship as well. After that, of course, uh, that's what needs to happen again. It's, it's, but we've got to end the suffering and, and uh, you know, uh, people um, who are in our midst, their neighbours, their neighbours, they're, they're, you know, they're part of our community um, mm -hmm. to ensure that they can be able to rebuild and belong. Look, the other thing, you know, you, you mentioned the medium long term. I, 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 um, if I could just mention broadly, I might stick here largely to, I think, the overarching ambition Um and it goes to a lot of what we've talked about already about some of the fault lines in migration policy. But I think that you know one of one of the critical issues is that in the Australian context is that um, for decades the um, approach has been um, underpinned by three key themes. I think um, when it comes to approach to asylum seekers and refugees, one is exclusion, second is discrimination, and the third is deterrence. What I call the deterrence agenda, and what that's resulted in um, uh, overall, I think, is a fundamental repudiation of our obligations under the Refugees Convention, you know, and other international treaties. I don't think there's any doubt. So years ago, um, you know, the question I think was many years ago, the question was, are we at risk of violating our obligations to refugees? I think that for some time that has not been the question any longer. I think it's the question. Uh, now is um, are any of the, the, the suite of policies and laws capable of meeting those obligations? Um, and I think that, you know, we're left with this situation that uh, so often the laws and policies, they've taken the law out of the law. Yeah. You know? um, but I want to come back to something critical in terms of the medium to long-term approach um, of reform. And to my mind, it starts with this, uh, should it at least, it should start by noting that what we've in the last, you know, two to three decades seen is not only a, a, a violation of international obligations, but I think something particularly critical here, a radical deviation from fundamental principles which underpin the Australian legal system. And so what I'm talking about here is that across the board with the treatment of asylum seekers and refugees, what we see are these radical deviations from these fundamentals of our system, legal system, such as access to the law, access to lawyers, uh, access to the courts, you know, um, habeas corpus, um, uh, anti-discrimination principles, and ultimately uh, treatment governed by the rule of law. Across the board, what we see are radical deviations from those fundamentals mm. you know, that we expect to apply across the Australian legal system. Mm. You know? And so you know, I would say the overarching um, aim here is to bring the treatment of asylum seekers and refugees back into the mainframe of the Australian legal system. Yeah. You know, that's the starting point. Um, and, uh, and then... What does that mean in practice? Well, what it means is also that we, we, we as part of that, that we respond um, and address what I think has been another of the key patterns, and that is an intensification of the executive overreach, of, of overreach by the government of the day. Um, you know, governments fiercely resisting independent scrutiny under law yeah. um, and trying to have a free hand in the treatment of, of asylum seekers and refugees um, on key issues issues about liberty and decision-making, who, who, 
who who will be found to be in need of protection. Yeah, yeah. I um I think that's such an important um, reflection about because um, there's lots of individual kind of technical um, things that we can change in the medium to long term. Yeah. Um, easier and harder in nature, but changing the goalposts or clarifying the goalposts so that we at least know where we want to head to. Um, uh, because right now the goalposts are going the other direction and it's more politics than rights and law. It's more performative. It's um, There's a completely different objective behind why we're doing the things that we're doing at the moment. So if you jump to something specific or technical, it doesn't make sense within that frame the, the framework of the goals that we're currently moving towards yeah. but um you've got um you've now got the ears of the the listeners and yeah. um you know we always want to have a strong call to action at the end so you know what do you want the people listening today to, to go away and do after hearing you all right i'm going to start with the one thing and then i'm going to give uh, uh something and then i'm going to give four things <laughs> so do something Mm. That's that's my plea uh, uh, and uh, my hope uh, is that we all can do something. Let's do something. And the something can be, there's a whole range of things, and I think we all have different, uh, you know, skills and, and resources and interests and passions. Um, but they, but um, So it could be just to better inform yourself. There's so much misinformation and that the politics in this area has been so... You know, frankly, toxic and um, full of you know, misinformation and um, and distortion. Um, just inform yourself well. Um, you know, think well um, about the issues and share them across the dinner table, or across the you know the bar, or whatever wherever you are. Um, share those thoughts and ideas and and facts. Um, you know, facts can facts and uh, and and knowledge as we know can be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, in a good sense. Um, uh, so that's number one, I, I would say, um, inform yourself. And uh, the second is, um, I, I can't emphasise enough the importance, I think, of, um, of you know, volunteering if you have uh, the interest and the time. Look, I, I think one of the most precious things of all um, is to give your time um, and, and lend an ear of, you know, and, and particularly for people who are, um, you know, seeking asylum, refugees who in our community, people seeking asylum who are, are you know, going through such turmoil um, in, our, in, our, in our community just to be with people and to support. So that um, volunteer, use your skills. I mean, if you've got, you know, obviously legal skills, um, they've been tremendously important for our organisation since day one, 30 34, 35 years ago, and uh, it just builds and builds. Um, but, you know, whatever it is, um, volunteering in other non-legal capacities. Um, but, so that's that's another. The, the third thing that I would say is engage politically. I, I just think that um, totally understand there's so much disillusionment about our political system, and I, I've come to think in the last decade at least that the way I would characterise politics in this country is we've lived through an era of the failure of politics. Mm. Um, Politics hasn't worked properly. Um, but look at it, rise of the independence um, going on at the moment. That's one response is, um, and I'm not, you know, suggesting, I'm not, you know, suggesting or um, we're, we're totally independent ourselves, fiercely so. But it's an interesting phenomenon. And I think that why I point to it is there's some agency in that. Well, if we want to see change, do something about it. Um, you know, whatever, whatever their visions are, and they're different, those independents, obviously. But I think, um, and that's just one example of many, but engage politically, um, you know, um, tell your local members what you think and feel about the, the response, you know, um, you know, what you think about people being locked up indefinitely down the road, you know, um, and, and the kind of change you want to see. Yeah. Uh, so that engage politically, whatever that means, um, you know, in locally, nationally, et cetera, um, and uh, ask for meetings and groups with your local MP. You know, write letters, but write, don't don't do pro forma letters. Would be my suggestion to mm. write them. You know, tailored, express yeah. what you want. Um, look, the, the final um, issue is some people um, happily um, it's very yeah you know, out um, in the in the NGO sector in the refugee sector. Uh, it's obviously chronically under resourced, and um, yeah, and some people um, also you know not only give their time but also um, have the ability to um, you know chip in. 
with donations. So that's another very powerful way to to get in, get involved. Uh, so you know, don't underestimate the importance of that. Whatever the area that you, if, if someone has the means to do it, whatever area they particularly have a passion for. Um, yep. But yeah, it, it, the donations are really significant because they. Um, do help agencies like ours and others to be able to help more people and to also develop um, work for change, develop ideas for change and and, uh, and have these kind of um, discussions too. Which which have been my privilege, um, David. Um, so I'll make sure that we put um, information on all of those four actions in, in the show notes, but uh, in particular how you can donate to, to organisations like Refugee Legal or the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Asylum Seeker Resource Centre as a range, and um, I can't stress that enough, that if you're in the position to do so, please do. Um, thank you so much, David. I've really appreciated the conversation. Oh, thanks a lot. So have uh... I.